what we see here as we jump into 2 Corinthians 3 is that Paul is once again having to address and answer his critics that have you know, been attacking him. people, these false apostles that have come into the church of Corinth. We've talked a lot about this over the last few weeks because it's been an ongoing thing that Paul's having to bring up and defend himself as to why he didn't come back to Corinth when he said he would. Many of them tried to use that to say, you can't believe Paul, he's not a man of integrity. And so Paul now is kind of answering once again his critics going, what, what do you need? Do you, do you need me to bring letters of commendation again to you? Not that Paul's done that previously, but what does he say here? He's saying that, listen, do we need a, some other's epistles of commendation? Now that was a common thing in this day when people would be traveling from town to town as maybe itinerant speakers, ministers, or evangelists, and they would move from you know, church to church. Well, no church is just gonna take some stranger in, at least they, they shouldn't. So they're gonna wanna have these letters of commendation. Just like when we apply for a job, we gotta give references, right? They're gonna check on those references to say and see what kind of person this is. Is he a man that, or a person that can be trusted? Are they integral? Do they do a good job? You know, like many of you that have been coming to church that are, are new, I, uh, you know, call the churches you came from to get that, you know, reference on you. It's quite frightening, some of the things I find out, but <laughs> I gotta do my due diligence. But listen, there's grace here, guys. There's nothing but, but grace and, and uh, a welcoming arm here for you. But, um, but we've all probably been that, in that state ourselves where we've kind of wanted to give a little bit of commendation for ourselves. Hey, you know, put in a good word for me, will you? You're talking to this person, put in a good word for me, you know, that kind of idea. And not that Paul is looking or wondering, do I need to kind of puff myself up here? Because Paul's never been that kind of a person where he's had to puff himself up. In fact, he, he says in 1 Corinthians 15:9 that he's the least of the apostles. And then three years later, when he's writing his letter to the church at Ephesus, he says, listen, I'm not just the least of the apostles. I'm the least of the saints. I mean, he goes much broader than that. But then near the end of his life in 1 Timothy 1:15, he says, not only I'm the least of the apostles, least of the saints, he goes, I'm the chief of sinners. I mean, Paul's progression of his own kind of view of himself sort of decreased in humility, his, his humility kind of grew as he grew in grace and began to understand all the more just who he is in Christ, that he is nobody and that Christ is everything. And so he grew in these things. So he's not looking to kind of puff himself up here by any means. In fact, what he's stating is like, do you really need a letter of commendation from me? Do I need to provide this for you? Notice what he says in verse two, and he kind of answers this here. He says, you are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. You see, what Paul is stating is, guys, I've been in the trenches with you. When Paul was in Corinth, he's no longer there, remember, um, but while he ministered in Corinth, I mean, he poured into these guys and Paul had a fruitful ministry. In fact, we've seen people that have been changed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lives were saved, lives were transformed, so much so that, again, this wicked and immoral place of Corinth, filled with idolatry, filled with every kind of excess, Paul says, man, I preach the good news, and we've seen people coming out of darkness and into light, moved out of death and into light. There is fruitfulness that's gone on in the ministry, and what Paul is saying is that this fruit kind of speaks for itself. 
right? This is my letter or my epistle accommodation. It's all of you guys that are living changed lives now because of Jesus Christ. And Paul explains that he doesn't need letters to authenticate his ministry because they're all doing just that. In fact, he says that you are an epistle to Christ for everybody to kind of look at and read and go, what's going on here? Man, you guys once were doing this stuff, which I kind of looked down, but now you're living this way, what's going on? How? It's an epistle being written of the work of Christ that Paul had a part of. They're new creations in Christ, and they're Paul's letters that validate now his integrity of ministry. Again, they're, they're letters of authentication. It's not letters written with pen and ink, but it's written through the Spirit of God, and it's written upon tablets of flesh, it says because it bypassed tablets of stone that oftentimes will maybe fade or get worn and become unclear, and it went right to the heart of people. That's what he means by tablets of flesh. It was planted, imprinted right upon your heart because it, didn't, it wasn't just an external you know, reading or sharing, it was transformative. It went right to the heart. See, Paul wasn't just passing on a cold, hard, tough to digest word, this was the living word of the living God, which brings life, thank you. Brings life, that's exactly what it does. And Paul's gonna go on in the next number of verses to show the inferiority of the old covenant, which he'll talk about as being the, the tablets of stone or the law. And he'll talk about the inferiority of the old covenant versus the new covenant, which is that which is written on the hearts of his people. See, God's will and God's ideal, right, was given to us through these 10 commandments written on these tablets of stone. But instead of it penetrating the heart, it became hard and they even became misinterpreted. It didn't resemble its original intention, but now this epistle is written on tablets of flesh. It goes right to the heart that brings about this change in people. It's a work of the spirit and not of the law. Paul goes on to say in verse four, and we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. See, Paul knew that changed lives were not his doing. He, he knows that this is a work of Christ and his trust is through Christ, or that word trust is that reliance. He goes, my reliance is on Christ to accomplish this work now. It's not something that I'm doing or performing. It's not up to me, it's up to Christ. And my reliance, my trust is in Christ. It's through Christ toward God to do this work. See, Paul and the other true apostles weren't able to, to pull this sort of work off through their own means or effort or through their own you know, resources, no amount of freedom sessions, no amount of, uh, of counseling appointments could do the work that could be done by the Spirit. So Paul is saying our sufficiency is not of ourselves. It was from God. And so Paul was completely, absolutely dependent on the Lord to do the work because it's the Lord's work that's going to bring about changed lives. And Paul is saying, this ministry of mine is being authenticated through changed eyes. It's not about me. It's about what the Lord has done. We're just simply the, the vessels. We're the ones that God you know, works through, but it's his work. 
And you see, Paul's answering that question they left us off with in last week, chapter two, verse 16. If you look over there, chapter two, verse 16, to the one were the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? He doesn't give us the answer right there. He just kind of continues on as Paul often did. He just gets caught up in a thought. He just keeps going until, and he has to come back to his answer. It's like, squirrel, what? And he just comes back to that later on, and he's answering this question that he leaves us with now. Who is sufficient? Nobody is. It's of God. Our sufficiency is from God. He makes that very clear. And that word sufficiency, it, it means capability or qualification. And that's what we're saying that Paul's revealing, I don't need letters of commendation. My qualification is that you can't disprove what's going on. It's not a work of man, it's a work of God. It's not his own ability, it's not his training, it's not his you know, uh, communication skills. It's God that's doing the work. See, the confirmation of his apostleship lies not in himself or his powers or resources, but in the effects of the ministry in people, effects which have their origin in Christ. Are we living with that same sort of dependency on the Lord? Is God truly our sufficiency? And we have to stop and sometimes just ask ourselves that, Lord, am I living a life where my sufficiency is coming from myself, where I'm more dependent on me than I am of you? Is he our sufficiency? Jesus would, would go on to say in John 15, verse five, saying, he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. You all know it. We all know it, but do we live that way? Do we really truly recognize that, Lord, without you, I can really do nothing? I can make a lot of things happen, but is it fruitful? life-giving things that Paul saw happen at Corinth. Without him, we can do nothing. And Paul goes on to state this very clearly here in verse six. He says that God also has made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. See, Paul's not taking any credit for the work that he's done in the lives that have been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's God who's called him, and it's God who's now made him sufficient. Paul's not going, well, God chose me because, I mean, look at me. Why, what's not to you know, choose out of this? Why would anyone refuse this, right? Paul's not going, I'm the most skilled. No, he's going, my sufficiency is simply from God. He's made us sufficient as ministers. It's God that's called him, and it's God that's using him and working through him. Paul was given the good news. He was given the goods to go and share, but he just had to pass that on and then let the Spirit do that work of changing lives. And it's here that Paul begins to introduce us to the differences between the old and the new covenants. And, and he'll, he'll really break this down for us in the uh, preceding verses that we're gonna look at here today. But as he mentions the letter there in verse six, he says that he's made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, 
What Paul is referring to by the letter is not these epistles, these letters written. Of, he's talking about the very law of God, the Ten Commandments given there on Mount Sinai there in Exodus. And so he's referring to the law, the, the tablets of stone. And he mentions again, verse three, he mentioned these tablets of stone. So he's, he's painting this picture to kind of show us the, the contrast that there is now between the old and the new covenants. See, Paul wasn't made a minister of the law, but he's made a minister of what? The spirit. Why? Because the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now you might be reading that and thinking, wait a second, hold on. The letter kills, the law kills. Well, I thought the law was good. I thought the law is a good thing. It's given to us by God. How is it not good? Well, first of all, you're right. It is good. But the problem is, is that we weren't. We weren't good. See, we weren't able to keep it. We weren't able to live up to it. The law was given to show, as I said earlier, God's ideal, God's standard of righteousness, but it gave us no ability to keep it and to follow it obediently. The law, you see, was unable to save us. It only revealed our death sentence. Barnett says this in his commentary, under the old covenant, the people did not have the spiritual resources to keep the law or any provision for forgiveness when they broke it. The law became a finger of accusation pointed against them until the law had been internalized through the spirit. It remained the letter, an instrument which kills. You see, the law is an external work, right? And it shows who we are externally. What's the purpose of the law? Here's the purpose of the law. It's given to show us that we're sinners and that in and of ourselves we're unable to live up to God's standard or requirement for righteousness and right standing before him. We couldn't do it. A lot of people love to say, oh, you know what, I don't really believe in all the Bible or I don't really go to church. I just kind of live by the 10 commandments. And you go, how are you doing with that? Because you might think I'm doing really good. You might think I'm keeping it. I mean, the, the thou shalt not murder. Don't have too much trouble with that. Most days. <laughs> don't commit adultery. Good, check. Uh, don't steal. Not, you know, no, not really. Uh, you know, and we can go through certain points, but then Jesus said, well, those are the external things that it's easy for us to say, oh yeah, check, check, good. But Jesus took it one step further and said, but what's going on in the heart? And he says, you know, you've heard it say, thou shalt not murder, but if you got hatred in your heart towards your brother, it's as though you committed murder against him. If you look at another person with lust in your eyes, it's as though you committed adultery. Jesus took it further to go, you know, it's simply to point out our sin. Paul made that very clear in Romans 7, verse 7 to 12. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Well, certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy 
and the commandment holy and just and good. To hear how we answer, listen, the law is good, there's nothing wrong, we're not, we're not, this, don't walk away from this message going, oh good, Brent said that the law is bad, we don't have to, we don't have to follow it or observe it. No, the law is not bad. The law is perfect. In fact, Psalm says the law is perfect, converting the soul. The law is good, but the law could not save us. The law was given to lead us to a savior. That is Jesus Christ. Because what it does is it awakens sin. That's what Paul is saying. Sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. You see, apart from the law, Paul didn't realize that he was sinning. The law begins to point out to us when we're doing something wrong, right? Like I, when I'm driving, I don't really observe signs too much. I just, I don't know why, I just don't. Don't, don't get mad at me. My wife does that enough for all of you. Um, because she's a stickler, right? And I'll be driving down the freeway and she's like, how fast are you going? Are you, break, are you going on the speed limit? And I'll be like, I don't know, haven't seen any signs. And I, and I'm, it's right. I'm like, I don't know if I'm doing anything wrong. I'm just driving. I don't know what the speed limit is. Sorry, I don't know. Haven't seen any signs, you know? But then suddenly I drive by a sign that she points out to me. There it is right there. Did you catch that one? I did now, yes. And now I know I'm guilty of breaking the law, right? And that's what Paul is stating here, is that it's only through the law that it begins to point out that I'm guilty of wrong. I'm guilty of sin. The law's not bad, but the law couldn't save us. It gave us no ability to be right with God. The law was given to reveal our sin and need for a savior, and the law is to point us to Christ and to the life that he now gives us through his forgiveness of sin and through the spirit dwelling in us to empower us to live this life of righteousness. Now, some have liked to interpret this verse to kind of, you know, say that the letter kills, that they refer to that as being, you know, the Bible and, and, and fundamentalists who are just, you know, all word-based, that they say, that's the letter, man. And it's just dry. If you just are, are in the word all the time, it's just gonna be dry and dead. It's not gonna really be effective. Can I just say how, how wrong that is? And those that say, we just need to be more open to uh, the spirit and to experience, that's not what Paul is saying here. Oh, we need to be open to the spirit, absolutely. But what Paul is doing is showing the superiority of the new covenant versus the old covenant. And we're never to neglect the word in favor of experience. Rather, it's the spirit that leads us now in the word of God because it's the living word of the living God that leads to life. Thank you. And that is through a work of the Spirit, no doubt. Now, as we continue on in verse seven, this is where Paul really begins to lay out the, the differences and, and look at the glory of the old covenant versus the glory of the new covenant. So he says in verse seven, but at the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. How will the ministry of the spirit not be much more glorious? Now again, let me just state, the old covenant was absolutely glorious. The law is good. 
So much so that when Moses came down from the mountain with those two tablets of stone that Paul's referencing in our passage in 2 Corinthians 3, to say the difference, two tablets of stone, the law of God, he walks down from the mountain. What's going on? Moses' face is glowing. There was glory accompanying the giving of the law. It was a glorious thing. The people were even afraid to come near him. But you see, that glory that was shining on Moses was temporary. It faded, just like my, my Christmas tan from the Dominican Republic, but that's all right. See, those things aren't lasting. And that's how it is with the law and trying to live by the law. See, you might shine for a time, but it's gonna fade. Some days, if you're living by the law, you're gonna be glowing greatly because you feel like you've been keeping it well. You haven't taken the Lord's name in vain. You haven't murdered anyone. You haven't stolen anything. I mean, you probably haven't left your house for you know, a good week, but you feel like, man, I've been doing good. I haven't had any problems. Things are great. But then comes a time, maybe you're coveting or you have an honored mom and dad and suddenly you begin to feel a little lousy. The shine has lost its luster but the reality all along is that the law, no matter how good it is, could never make you good. You will never continue to shine if you're living by the law, it will fade. Paul's point is, if that law is glorious, how much more is the ministry of the spirit? Let's see why. It goes on to say in verse nine. For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. What's the ministry of condemnation? That's the reference to the law. How so Paul is using as a term to describe the law. The ministry of condemnation. How does that sound? Sounds like a new group we could start up in the church. Let's have a ministry of condemnation. If you're feeling particularly good about yourself, come on out to this ministry and you will leave different. We're gonna bring some condemnation upon. No, and that's not, this is how Paul's referring to the law. You see, even this had glory because it was of God. The law, though it condemned, it showed God's perfect standard of righteousness. And it brought condemnation only because we were unable to fulfill the law and to live up to it. It's not that God was out purposefully to condemn you is that he showed the law is not gonna cut it. It's gonna reveal your sin, and yes, it's gonna condemn, but so as to lead you to righteousness. You see, the law condemns because, like I said, there are people that try to live by the law, but it's gonna lose its shine. It's gonna fade. The Bible says in James chapter two, verse 10, that if you break one part of the law, it's as though you've broken it all. A lot of people think I'm doing good, but when you really bring it under the microscope of what God's ideal is, you begin to see, oh man, I'm, I faulted in this. And because you've faulted in it, the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we recognize we're guilty now before him we're brought under condemnation. So the law is no way to live in peace and in the life that God has for us. Whereas the ministry of the spirit exceeds in glory because it's a ministry of righteousness. Again, the law could never 
bring us into a right standing with God. The system of sacrifices within the law, well, they covered our sin, but only for a time they could never fully remove sin. Jesus, however, now comes as our righteousness. He died as our final sacrifice. That doesn't just cover our sins, but now removes our sins completely and brings us into a right standing with God. One of the greatest verses in the Bible, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, will be there in a few weeks. It says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This, my friends, is the greatest transaction or deal that you will ever receive. And I pray you've all made that deal, that you said, I'm a sinner and I wanna pass on that sin to Jesus Christ who's taken it all from me and forgiven me, but now has given me his righteousness so that I can stand complete and right before a holy and just God. That's what Christ has done for us. That's the ministry of the spirit of the new covenant, the ministry of righteousness to where we no longer have to walk under the ministry of condemnation. Praise the Lord for that. And God has even spoken of this in the Old Testament. This is something that wasn't a change of plans where God said, well, that plan didn't quite work out as I expected. No, this is always the heart of God. Ezekiel 36 Verse 26 to 27, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take that heart of stone out of your flesh and I'm gonna give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Jeremiah 31, verse 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. Notice this, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. That's something they didn't experience under the old covenant. They had to keep bringing sacrifices. They would have the, 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 the scapegoat that they would lay hands on. David told them they would confess their sins upon the goat and then release it into the wilderness. But that goat may come back into the camp the next day. It's like, oh, what's this goat doing here? That's our sin goat, get it out of here. It was never fully removed until Jesus, the sinless, perfect one, fully God, fully man, died to forgive us and cleanse us of our sin and to remove our sins to where, as he's already promised there in Jeremiah 31 of the new covenant, he will remember our sins no more. Praise the Lord, we're clothed now in his righteousness. And these are all the same kind of terminology that Paul's been using in this chapter, talking about this heart of stone versus this heart of flesh. That's what Paul is pointing to. It's already been revealed to us in God's word through the Old Testament. So we have this amazing blessing of coming into new life now in Christ and experiencing the glory of new life through the spirit that imparts to us Christ's righteousness and through the spirit enables us to live righteous lives in him and through him. That is absolutely glory. 
right there. Paul says in Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin, or he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That's the ministry of the spirit to where now we no longer are condemned in the flesh, but now that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us because of what Jesus has done. And all those that have placed their trust in Christ that now stand in Christ, stand in his righteousness. Glorious, my friends. Look at what Paul goes on to say in verse 10. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. So what Paul says here is that the glory of the new covenant far exceeds whatever glory there was in the old covenant. And it was glorious. The law was good. The old covenant wasn't bad, but it couldn't do what we needed to do for us. God knew that. It was to point out our need for Jesus. So now with the glory and the shine and the luster of the new covenant, this old covenant just begins to lose its shine. It's overtaken by that. And that's the way it always works. A.T. Robertson states, the greater glory dims the less. In one point, at least the old seems to have no glory at all because of the superabundant glory of the new covenant. Danae comments and says this, when the sun shines in his strength, there's no other glory in the sky. The new covenant supersedes and overtakes all in its glory. Here's also why the new covenant is much more glorious, because it's permanent. Notice what Paul says in verse seven, for if what is passing away, speaking of the old covenant, is passing away. It, 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 it no longer is going to have its effect in our lives now that we have the greater glory. It's passing away, whereas the new covenant, notice he says, what remains is much more glorious. The new covenant is that which remains, it's permanent. It's never gonna fade out. We will continue to stand in the righteousness of Christ and we will forever and ever continue to praise God and worship Jesus because of the work that he did in, in order for us to be with him forever and ever. We will never ever move away from the place of just praising him for the righteousness that he's imparted to us to give us and grant us eternal life. So the old covenant is referred to as that which is passing away, but the new is that which remains and continues on. Verse 12, we begin to look at now again, furthermore, why the new covenant is so glorious, it's because of the work of the spirit and the transformation through the spirit. Verse 12 says, therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. See, no longer do we need to strive to attain to something that we're just unable to. That's what a lot of people do. They feel like I gotta earn my way. I gotta work for this. That's what all religion teaches. You wanna be right with 
whatever God you're worshiping, well, you've gotta do this and do that and be this way and be that. And it's all about striving and earning. And we continue to try to climb that mountain, but we never reach that precipice. That's why Christianity is so different. God came down from the mountain and reached us where we were at, did the work for us that we were unable to do. So Paul says, we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Paul speaks confidently the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's not relying on man's ability, it's simply passing on what Jesus has done for us. So Paul has great boldness and he's seen lives changed. He's seen the effect of the work and the power of the gospel. Paul would say in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation. So he says, I'm gonna speak this with great boldness of speech now because it's the only way. It's the only way to be right with God and to see lives changed. And then Paul brings up the reason Moses put a veil on his face. See, Moses didn't put a veil on his face when he comes down from the mountain with the the glow and the shine happening on him. He didn't put put a veil on his face to prevent people from seeing the glow. He put a veil on his face to prevent them from seeing the fading of that glow. Moses knowing this wasn't permanent. The law had its place, but it wasn't to remain as the way to earn a right standing with God. We're moving from glory to glory. Just keeps getting better and better in what God has for us. F.W. Grant has beautifully stated, the glory on the face of Moses must give way to the glory of another face. And that's to behold Jesus, to look to Jesus and see what he's done for us. And to go, that's where the real glory is at on Jesus. Verse 14, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. So even to this day, to, to many Jews, and Paul's, I'm sure, got you know, the Jewish people in mind because Paul had such a heart for his own people, the Hebrew people, he wanted to see them saved. He was willing to be accursed himself if it meant the salvation of, of his fellow Jews. Paul had such a heart for them, but he realizes the veil is still there upon them. They, they, they're trusting in their own good works to outweigh their bad works and to put them in a right standing with God. They're thinking salvation is about keeping the law. Now the Bible says that they've been blinded in part Romans eleven twenty five. They have not, for the most part, seen that the law has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. There's a veil still on their hearts preventing them from seeing this truth. But look at what Paul says, verse 16. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And let me say what a joy it is when you see a Jew that has a veil removed. Because they begin to see that everything that they've been studying, everything they've been being taught right from childhood. Everything they've been looking at suddenly has new life to it. They begin to see, whoa, how did I miss this? This is speaking about Jesus. And we're all sitting here going, yeah, that's what we've been trying to tell you. 
Exactly. It all points to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The Old Testament is Jesus concealed. The New Testament is Jesus revealed. But it's all looking ahead to what Jesus has done. The Passover, for instance. I mean, Jews celebrate Passover every year. And they go through their their traditions. They go through their program. But suddenly when they do that, after coming to salvation knowledge in Jesus Christ, they go through the Passover and they're going, oh my goodness, how did I miss this before? This is so clearly about Jesus. How did I not get it? There is a veil. You're blinded in part, but that veil's been removed. And suddenly, like a blind man receiving sight and seeing everything through a fresh perspective, that's what happens to people that come to Christ where the veil is removed and suddenly they see so clearly. That's not just regarding Jews, that's anybody that puts their faith in Jesus and suddenly begins to have new sight. That happens individually, it's gonna happen in a future time nationally for Israel. Romans 11, verse 25, 26 talks about that blindness in part, but one day, Paul says, all Israel will be saved. Not that everybody's gonna be saved just because they're Jewish, but there's gonna come a day when they're gonna look up and see and recognize who Jesus is. And there's gonna be a national mourning and a national repentance. That's why Paul says all Israel will be saved in that day. Now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, or there is freedom. Praise the Lord that in Jesus, we experience great liberty and freedom in and through Christ. We're no longer working to earn our salvation. We're no longer under condemnation any longer. We are free, and who the Son has set free is what? Free indeed. This is glorious stuff. So Paul is saying, we're moving from glory to glory. Now some have taken this verse, verse 17, and thought, oh, well, what this means is that where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. And so that as we gather, as we meet, and when the spirit is at work and moving, well, we can just throw off all restraint. There's freedom, liberty, we can do. We can cluck like a chicken. We can shake, rattle, and roll. We can just have an incredible experience here. We just have all restraint because where the spirit is, there's freedom. That's not what Paul is saying. We've got to look at the context. What is Paul saying? We're no longer bound and under the burden of the law. We've been set free from that. We no longer have to walk with this heavy weight going, oh, I don't know if I'm doing enough. I don't know if, I've, if I'm earning my way to, sell, to, to God. I think I've blown it, I don't know. And there's burden, Paul says no. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. You're brought out from that. You no longer have to work to earn your way. It's been given to you freely in and through Christ by grace and through faith turning to him, repenting of sin, and receiving his righteousness. It's done. Paul had addressed this in the church at Galatia that they were beginning to turn back to their old ways and back under the law. Paul says, no, 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 why go back to the law? Not even our fathers could keep that. That was a yoke of bondage on them. Don't be brought back under that fact. He would say in Galatians 5, verse one, stand fast therefore in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Don't entangle yourself again. 
Stand fast, stand firmly in the freedom and the liberty that we have in and through Christ. Rejoice in that, my friends. Rejoice in what Jesus has done for us. It's the greater glory. Lastly, verse 18, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So again, praise the Lord that we're not veiled from seeing the glory of the Lord. But, but how do we see that glory? How do we know that glory more? It's by spending time with Jesus. See, James likens the word of God to a mirror. And you see, when you look at a mirror, not only does it reveal our dirt, right? You've had a good breakfast, you've washed up, you think you're good, you look at a mirror, and suddenly you're like, man, I got half my breakfast on my face. Good thing I checked the mirror. It's gonna reveal all the flaws. That's what the word of God does first and foremost, but it also reveals the brilliance of Jesus. We are beholding as in a mirror because it's in part. Oh, there's coming a day, as John writes in 1 John 3, that we're going to see him, we're gonna behold him, and we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. But right now we see in part, we look into the living word of the living God, and we begin to see Jesus and the brilliance and the glory of God, and we begin to grow in those things. And as we spend time with Jesus in, in Bible study, in prayer, in fellowship, something dynamic happens. We become transformed into the same image of his brilliance and glory. Look to Jesus and you're never gonna be the same. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. And this transformation, that's a great word he uses because it speaks of a metamorphosis. It's like the ugly caterpillar going in this cocoon and emerging a beautiful butterfly. That's a miracle, isn't it? But that's a miracle that happens in each and every one of our lives as we yield ourselves and commit ourselves to Christ and live in him, is that the spirit is doing a work of metamorphosis, changing you from who you once were into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's a work that we don't do ourselves we can't do it. How many of us would love to change? I'm sure all of us would love to change and be more like Christ. How many times do we try with all our might to change? And we're sometimes just spinning our wheels. I, I spent some time yesterday and I was rigging up this John Deere lawnmower we have. I'm going, I'm gonna make this thing a snowplow so that when that snow hits, I'm gonna be able to just plow through my driveway. It's gonna be great. And we're rigging it up, me and my neighbor Brandon, and we're bolting on this, you know, little piece of wood that was gonna be our plow. I jumped on that thing. You see, you're laughing already, thanks. Appreciate that. <clears throat> and I started that thing up this morning and I put it in a gear and I start to go, got two feet. And then I just got stuck. And now the wheels are spinning and it's doing nothing. And I'm like, well, all right, honey, push me back in here. I got nothing now. We're gonna go manual labor, right? But that's what happens oftentimes for us. We're just spinning our wheels. We're thinking, I gotta do this and I gotta do that. Listen. Give yourselves over to the spirit. It's his work. Let him do that work of transformation in your life, making you more like Christ. Oh yes, look unto Jesus, be in his word, spend time in prayer, but let the spirit do that work of transforming you and making you in his image. Romans 12, two, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed 
by the renewing of your mind. Continue to give yourself, yield yourself to the Lord and see what he will do in and through. Worship team, come on up. We're gonna close in prayer and worship. Here's this last slide here. I'll just show you the summary of contrast between the old and new covenants here. If you wanna take a picture of that, this is what we've been looking at here. The inferiority of the old versus the new. Not that the old is bad, but the old could not save us. The old could not do anything to empower us to live that. Christ does that through his spirit. He gives us his righteousness by which we now have a right standing with God. We've moved from glory to glory. May we continue to go from glory to glory as we behold Jesus, the most glorious of all.